here we are, right now. With some more words to share, with some new words to share, with some, as usual, spontaneous words to share. Today, here, together, I'd like us to discuss this phrase, everything means everything. This is somewhat of a slogan of mine. This is somewhat of a motto. It's something that has been bouncing around in my head for at least a couple of months now. And I'd like us to go into this. I'd like us to unpack some of the layers, explore some of the avenues, go into some of the mechanics, the descriptions, the meanings, the implications. And I'd really like to give this to you as a kind of gift from me to you. Everything means everything. That is our phrase of the day. It's our motto of the day. And I think it applies to so much in these times, in this cultural climate, in this economic climate, in this social sphere, in the places that we are around the world. And I also feel that it applies to history. It applies to many things that have come in the past. And the things that I pour into this phrase, the things that I really associate with this phrase, everything means everything, are things that have been around for a very long time. They're things that have been in many cultures. There are things that, they are things that have affected many people in many times, in many ways. And they will go on affecting people. These are not things that are going away anytime soon. These are things that everyone will encounter again and again in varying degrees as their life unfolds. And I say that because the fact of the matter is that we are born and we live in a time and place. It might sound a bit outrageous to say that. It might seem a bit autodidactic. Is that the word I'm looking for? I don't know if that's the right word. I think I think I'm the autodidactic. And the word that I'm actually looking for has replaced itself with autodidactic for the moment. No matter, it will appear later on. We live in a time and place. That is a fact. That is the fact of the matter. And the times and the places that we are have an effect on us. The cultural customs that are around us, the physical objects that are in our hands, the thoughts, the ideas, the words, the psychologies that are shared between us via our voices and our written words and the rest of communication mediums. We live in a time and a place which has limits to 
what it can do to us. It has limits as to what we can be in that time and place. Because of all of the factors, however many factors you want to slice it into, however many gradations of points of contact we can make, however we analyze our situation, we will always come back to the fact that we're here, we're now. We're in this situation, regardless of however we analyze it. Which, of course, is what brings us to analysis. It's what brings us to meaning. What does it all mean? Why are we in this place? What is this place? What are these times that we are living? And really, that's all that communication is trying to get at. What on earth is going on? What on earth is happening? What does anything mean? What means anything? (laughs) And of course, I do like to giggle at these sorts of conversations a little bit because they are, in a sense, a bit of fun, a bit of a game, a bit of a play. But also there is something quite serious to it. So let me tread that line as we always do. Let me try to tightrope walk out onto this stage which has seriousness on one side and the joke on the other. If I could be the half clown, half ringleader, I think that's what I would be. Everything means everything. To really get the depth of this, I'd like to go into postmodernism. I'd like to go into what I call talking it forward or words as propellants. I'd like to go into the mass of meaning, the amount of meaning, or we could say the potency of substance. I'd also like to look at conservatism, high and low, because this is part of it. This is part of the culture that we live in. Conservatism is one of those things that rears its head, and it exists for a reason. I'd also look, like to look at pluralism, which is closely related to postmodernism, and I'd like to look at the fallacies and pathologies of these things. And a little later on, I'd like to look at why meaning is important. And maybe you don't need to be sold on that. Maybe I don't need to preach that so much. Maybe you've already figured out that meaning is a problem. Well, not a problem, but important. I mean, in a sense, it is a problem. In a sense, it is that we are condemned to meaning. And I believe we even spoke about this when we were discussing Ken Wilber's book, Grace and Grit, and he has a chapter titled Condemned to Meaning in that book. And that's a very deep conversation. We did a whole series on that, so you can go back and listen to that. And finally, I'd like us to then come full circle back to the use of a motto. And we're going to look at the fishing hook principle single note theory, and just generally 
the practical use of a playful catchphrase. So that's what's in store for this conversation. I hope that's enough to lure you in to see how much resonance there is with these things. And just assess for yourself, quite honestly, right now, if this is the right conversation for you. How is this resonating? How does it feel to hear these words? What is it that's being triggered within you? What are you thinking about? What sort of ideas are coming? How do you feel in your body? This is really something you need to come back to again and again. It's your response to these words. And that is so much more important than what I'm saying. Even more important than what you're hearing. It's how you're hearing it. So if it is the case that this conversation is not for you, well, perhaps you do need to tune out (laughs) without trying to talk myself out of an audience. Let me just say that we're here if it's resonating for you. We're here because it's onto something for you. So that's why you should listen or not listen. And there is a difference between it not resonating with you and just having a short attention span or just being like, oh, I don't care about this sort of thing. That's different altogether. So your sincerity Your authenticity with how you listen is something that I must demand from you. I must remind you again of it. And I will remind you again and again of it in different ways as we go along. Maybe not in this conversation. Maybe yes in this conversation. But however we talk moving here forwards, I must be able to remind you that it's your responsibility how you resonate with these things. And there's a lot in that. That's probably a bit of a tangent, but let's crack into it. What is postmodernism? And really this phrase, everything means everything, is designed to be the triumph and the death of postmodernism. Because postmodernism basically is a collapse of meaning. Because we figure out that, well, you've got your opinion and I've got my opinion. And we're different people, so we have different opinions, we have different perspectives, different ways of seeing the world. So let's just leave it at that, right? It's just your opinion, it's just my opinion. We can keep it at that and we can respect each other and we can know that they're different. And that's how it's always going to go. That's basically postmodernism in a nutshell. But very quickly, you run into problems because not only is it just you and me that have different opinions, but then we also have Jim Jones down the road. Well, (laughs) maybe not Jim Jones. (laughs) He might be the wrong name to use. (laughs) Let's just say Mr. Jones. We don't need to call we don't need to bring Jim Jones into it. <laughs> whoever his name is, whoever it is, there's someone else down the road and another person and another person, and then very quickly we re- realize that every single person has a different opinion and a different perspective, which by logic must mean 
that there's no way to know anything that is true. There's no way to know exactly what is correct. And this is one of the fallacies of postmodernism because it forgets, it downplays, it denies the cold hard fact that there is an ultimate truth that doesn't care about people's perspectives, doesn't care about people's opinions. There is a real tangible world out there. And that world can be known via very different methods and paradigms than just your own personal feeling or your own ideas or your own perspective or however you feel about it. And to reconcile these two things is really to go beyond postmodernism. To be able to know that, yes, everyone does have their own perspective and they are encapsulated in it, and also there is an objective world out there, is to really go beyond and to really understand it. But really, so many people fall into either these two camps. They either say it's all the individual's own perspective or they fall on the other side and they say, no, the world is as it is and we can only know it through whatever means by which we say we know it by, whether it's rationality or scientific inquiry or general consensus or observation or mathematics or laws of science, or physics, or biology, or whatever it is. And when you can see these two sides, it's very obvious, just by the way someone talks, where they fall. And it's, it's, it's a real, well, it's a real pain to be in either of those, to be stuck in either in either of those, And only either of those is to be stuck. It's to be really just fragmented or partial. So it's an absolute must to transcend both these camps. And I don't mean transcend by doing away with. I mean by embracing both and reconciling the paradox of both. And we can go into more detail about what transcending the two means as we go along. Now, to talk a little bit more about postmodernism, let's give a few concrete concrete classic examples. So these are like the textbook cases of postmodernism, so you can see it in action. And this is all ABC stuff. I'm pretty sure you would know all this, but let's go back to basics. Anyway, let's just be clear and let's just do some simple, really easy ABC examples. Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol, the artist, he got the tin of beans and he put it up onto the canvas. And that was his statement to say that this is art. A tin of beans can be art. And this was one of the most revolutionary things in his day. How can a tin of beans be art? Up until that moment, we'd been thinking that art is art and the mundane objects are mundane objects. 
And yet, he came along with this powerful cultural statement that anything can be art. Anything can mean anything. That's the statement that he's saying when he says that this tin of beans is an artwork. And from there, you have many examples of it. Now we have things like, well, this giant rock is an artwork or this blank canvas, this white canvas is an artwork and so on. There are many examples of that. But the statement is the same. It is that anything can mean anything. Now, there's also a very funny story which I have when I was in a bar one time and I was talking to this eccentric old local who was an artist and he was a bit of a hobo, a bit of a, a, a bum or an off-the-beaten-path sort of guy, a really eccentric, weird guy. And he really told outrageous stories. And he was talking once and he just sort of said, out of the blue, everything... Uh, what, what did he say? It was something like, he, like somehow postmodernism and modernism came up. And, and of course, that's what all the artists are talking about, right? But he says, he said, modernism ended in 1972 at 9am at Woodford when Jimi Hendrix played. And everything else after that is postmodernism. And I just laughed at this and I thought, well... Has he got his date right, dates right? I don't know if I've even got the dates right. Was Jimi Hendrix even alive at that time? <laughs> I don't know. That's probably sloppy with my own research as to what... I mean, did he even play at Woodstock? I don't even know. So the actual details of the story might not even be true. But the, the imagery there, the statement there that there is a pre-modern and a post-modern breaking down into time is quite radical. Because often we make these distinctions, these cultural meaningful distinctions or distinctions of meaning by how they appear in culture or how they are as paradigms behaving in culture or manifesting themselves in culture. And here this eccentric old guy at the bar was saying, well, no, it's actually a point in time. So that's another little story which will help to, I think, maybe it doesn't help to clarify what postmodernism is, but at least it will help to throw another metric into the cultural sphere. Now, to say a little bit about how postmodernism appears in culture, well, we have things like recontextualization and collages and satire, and self-referencing materials. So a collage would be where you take a few different things from different sources and you mash them together. So there's the actual meaning of the word collage where you clip out pieces of newspaper or photographs and then you put them together into an artwork, an image, and that's an art unto itself. But we also have that in music with sampling, with referencing other musicians, with copying other musicians. Musicians copy other musicians. And then we also see it in fashion. 
And of course, we also see it in the academia. We also see it in literature. So the collage is sometimes a little bit tricky to identify because unless you know the cultural references, you're not going to see it in some ways pieced all together. Now, in the case of an image where someone's cut out the pieces of photograph or the article or whatever it is that they've taken it from, sometimes that's obvious. Sometimes the actual aesthetic of the collage is kept to be there. Other times it's done in such a way that it's not meant to appear as a collage. It's actually meant to appear as this own thing unto itself. And it's the only the, only the creators that would then know if it's a collage, that it is a collage. It's the creators and the people who know the cultural references. So that's a little bit about collages, and that appears all over the place now. We also have recontextualization, which is where you take one thing and you put it into another place, and it means something completely different. This comes back to the Andy Warhol artwork. If you take a tin of beans or a can of soup and you put it up into the art gallery, it means something completely different. And it's such a shock that an object could mean something so different that it creates a reaction. It creates a, a stir. It's a, sort of, it's a sort of opening in the value sphere. It's an opening in the cultural sphere. And that's recontextualization. That's making something mean something different by changing the context, changing the environment that it's in. Then there's also, as I mentioned before, the things that are self-aware. So these are the things that will say they are what they are. And this comes up most prominently now in advertising. You see an ad that says something like, well, you can't skip this ad because it's already over. Or this ad was very expensive to make, so we hope it's successful. Or... Something like that. You can see all sorts of examples. Anything that reference itself, anything that talks about itself within itself, that's self-referencing. Now, I did also call that self-aware, but I really just want to <laughs> save the phrase self-aware for something different. So self-referencing is the phrase we use for that now. And then we also have satire. So satire is, well, I mean, satire isn't just... For the postmodernists, that's something that's been around for millennia in many different ways. So I don't know if satire really comes into it, but it can be in its own way a kind of process or genre that mixes in with collages and recontextualization. So postmodernism is really... It's really something that we're in the midst of. It's really something that pervades throughout our culture and manifests itself in so many ways. And for individuals, ultimately what it means is I have my perspective and you have your perspective. And if you find yourself thinking that, you find yourself saying that, 
then you've fallen for postmodernism. You're in the midst of postmodernism. You're really in it like a fish is in water. You don't know you're in it. So that's why we have these conversations, is to open that up, to have that realization, to actually see the water that is around us. Now this ties back to everything means everything, because, well, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Maybe just hold that as something to keep in mind, because when we talk about meaning, well, what does anything mean? That's the question that we're getting at. That's the real crux of the root issue. And everything means everything is the answer to what does anything mean. And I think that sums it up quite well. I think that is really how postmodernism folds in on itself. It's how it's found its way back to the base of things. Because if you say, say you, you can see this very easily, right? You can see this so quickly in a simple way because you can say, I have my perspective and you have your perspective. But then you can say, well, that's just your perspective. And immediately there you see it has folded back on itself. But the ones that fall for postmodernism and the ones that are trapped in it, they don't take that through to its logical conclusion. They're walking around saying, it's just your perspective. It's just your perspective. It's just your perspective. And it goes around and around in circles. When really, they need to take a big step backwards and to see truly, deeply, from a kind of meta point of view, or from a bird's eye view, that that is your own perspective. And it's so funny that we have to use the same words for two different things. Maybe that's why it is that people get trapped in these loops and they go around and around. So, let's now go to talking it forward, which really is the solution to this thing of words going around and around in circles. So, when you talk to yourself and you say, that's just your perspective. Well, that's just your perspective. Well, that's just your perspective. Yes, but that is just your perspective. You're talking in circles. You're talking backwards, in a sense. You're talking around and around and you're trapped. So, the solution to talking backwards is to talking forwards. The solution is to talk forwards. And that, in a sense, well, I shouldn't say in a sense, I should say in its essence, in its real core, is where you take something and you actually say, no, this does mean something. This does mean what it means. And then you would be saying something like, no, it is not just your opinion. This actually does mean what it means, irregardless of what you think. And that's a contradiction. If you had two people in a room and someone stood up 
and said, no, you're wrong. This is what it means. And they assert it. They assert their belief. They assert their values. Then there's a contradiction there. There's a clash there. And that's a kind of talking it forward. That's a kind of realizing that you can create your own meaning, which means that you're going to push forward and actually do it and have it realized in the real world. Now, you can realize a belief or a value just with words very easily. And that is essentially what this phrase is doing. Everything means everything. It's asserting a value sphere. It's asserting a belief. It's asserting meaning for itself. And this has so many implications. I mean, the difference between value spheres and beliefs is why we have the culture wars. It's why people argue. It's why people debate. It's why people get upset with each other. It's why people argue and have all sorts of nasty things and retaliations and all the rest. No, it's just a big mess really, isn't it? But once you see that what's happening is this kind of push towards meaning, and sometimes it's happening on both sides, mind you, then you see why there is so much conflict. You see why there is so much tension, why there is so much, in a way, violence. And the best thing to do with this is to understand that words mean something. Words push towards something. And this is where we bring in the motivational paradigm. So you can understand why people say certain things to you. And then once they've been talking for some time, you'll feel like doing something. You'll feel a kind of action. Now, there are figures of speech that are actually designed just for this. This is the call to action. This is get up and do something. And if you're a very well-rounded writer, you can write in such a way that will insert this. You can write in such a way where you can insert this technique to cause a lot of motivation in your reader. And you do it subtly. You do it in a way that is, you, you do it like you craft it in a certain way so that it has its perfect proper effect. And this is something that you must be aware of. It's that words lead to actions. Words can be as propellants. And the whole motivational paradigm is like the whole motivational speaker, the whole self-help industry, the whole positive psychology industry is geared on just that one idea. It's that someone can sit and say words and the person that hears it can then go out and have an action or have a, a, a push towards an action. Now, if that's the case and you're tying this in with what words mean, then you need to be very careful with what you argue about. You need to be very clear on what it is that you're asserting because this comes back to your actions. This comes back to how it actually feeds into the rest of you. Now, we can also look at this and say that 
there is a chicken or the egg principle happening, right? What comes first, actions or words? Well, in a funny way, they're in a big circle, in a round circle with about a dozen or so or more other things, right? It's like I said at the beginning, it doesn't matter how many points of analysis we put on our situation, on our life conditions, we're still going to have more gradations that we can make and more complexes that we can use. So don't let it mean that this is the be-all and end-all. I'm not saying that words are the beginning or the end of everything. And actually what comes to mind is some Christian literature in a certain place which says that in the beginning was the word. And this is the... Christian take on what comes first, the chicken or the egg. But that's just a little thing that comes to mind. So another side of this is nihilism and ecclesiastics, which is that everything is meaningless. Basically, if you want to understand nihilism, then you take one side of postmodernism and you've got yourself a pretty good brand of nihilism. Because if you say your opinion is your opinion and mine is mine, it's only one step away from everything is meaningless. And this is where we come back again to everything means everything. Now, you have to contend with nihilism. You have to contend with its implications. You have to contend with what it means. Because you can't discount the meaning of something. Because when something asserts itself, it has a meaning, it has a significance. There is a significance to non-meaning. There is a significance to meaningless. There is a meaning behind meaningless. And we could have said, instead of saying, well, I mean, let's try and put this into our core phrase, right? So everything means everything. We could have said nothing means nothing. Right? And you get the same effect. Nothing means nothing. Or we could have said, Let, let's, let's try this another way. Let's see if this works. Everything doesn't mean nothing. Nothing doesn't mean everything. Now, I don't know if that really has the same effect. I don't know if that's really working. I think the only real inversion of this phrase, everything means everything, is nothing means nothing. But like meaningless and or or like you have this thing of oh it's just your perspective, it's just your perspective, and it goes around and around in circles, well you have the same sort of circle with meaningless and meaningless and meaning. There's a there's the same sort of trap, the same sort of thing that is sort of spiraling out of control, which is that, well, 
this means something, but it only means something because of its context, which means that it is actually meaningless. Which means that nothing can mean anything because it's all based on its context. Which means that everything is meaningless. And that's, in a sense, what Ecclesiastics is getting at. Everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Nothing is new. It's pointless. It's purposeless. But that's only one side of the story. That's only one side of what's happening there. You're caught in a talk which only goes around and around in circles instead of talking it forwards, instead of actually asserting something. Now, another way of looking at this is to say that each word has a depth to it. And the depth of the word, in many ways, depends on who's saying it. It also depends on where it is being said. It also depends on what platform or by which way it's being said. It also depends on the words around it. So context does matter. But here you start to see that when we say something like context does matter, it's so easy to fall into a trap because you can say, well, let me analyze the context of the words of this speech and you can analyze the speech and you can say, well, what was the opening sentence? What was the subject material? What was the phrasing? What was the sentence lengths? How was the punctuation? How was the articulation? How was the emphasis? How was the tone of voice? And we can go into this deep analysis of the speech to understand the context of the words and get to the end of that and say, yes, we have successfully analyzed the context and the meaning of this speech And yet we can leave a whole lot of other things out, such as what was the cultural background or the political standing or the political role of the person giving the speech. What was the location of the speech? What was the occasion? Where was it given? For what reason? And a whole array of other things that we can miss out. And that's the trap of analysis. That's a trap of not knowing the depth of words. That's the trap of not knowing how far it really goes. And we can say, well, you'll never know how far it goes because there's always more to understand. But actually, that's something you need to be aware of. That's something that you need to be able to recognize within yourself not as something that degrades words. It's not as something that it's it's not something that is meant to say, oh well, well, you'll never understand it, or you'll never know how deep it really is, because there's always more to the story. On the contrary, that can be the thing that opens you up to how deep it is. That realization of knowing that there's more, actually opens you to more depth. Now, there is a lot to the depth of words. 
And I come back again to it matters who's saying it, how much depth there is in the person. And this is why great speeches are, well, I would say that these big political speeches that are given have an appeal to them because of their cultural significance. Like the Queen can get up and say something, and that's going to be quite a profound speech. It's quite it's it's going to be quite hard for the Queen to be saying something and for it not to have a big cultural resonance to it because of who she is, because of her cultural standing, because of her role within society. And yet at the same time, the words in another way, can be quite hollow. They can ring quite shallow. They can not really mean much at all with certain individuals. And maybe that says something about how much the culture has a grip on you or where you stand in the culture. And we all do have moments where words resonate. We have moments where words actually hit something. They hit a nerve. And whether that's a positive thing or a negative thing, well, both happens. But if you're listening to words, if you're listening to people talk, and really this comes up again and again in life, however you are, because you're always connected to the environment around you, And there's always a scale. There's always an amount of things that are talking forwards to you. When they're talking forwards, you're sort of like, yes, that's it. Yeah, that's how it is. You're on on the edge of your seat. Yes, tell me more. Yes, that's exactly how I feel. And when it's not, you sort of, well, you just tune out. Or it's just mundane talk. It's just small talk where there's a place for that as well. But this is something you can become conscious of. This is something that you can actually watch within yourself. Now, why is it that this resonates with me? And you can learn to listen to things that don't resonate with you as a way of opening up to new things. You can open up to new ideas by actually reversing this around and saying, well, what is it that I'm missing? And how is it that listening to words is sort of like eating candy it's like this food this food will be good for you and you say well i don't like the taste of it i just like chocolate and candy and junk food and you say well that's how your taste buds are conditioned that's how your habits are and it may take some time for you to actually get yourself off the junk food it may take some awareness, it might take some, take some work, it might take some sacrifice, some pain. And it's the same thing with words. You say, oh, this person really resonates with me. And you might say, well, that's because you've been listening to them for so long. <laughs> it's because they're telling you exactly what you want to hear, which is what you've swallowed of all the things that they've been telling you. And that's how you find yourself in these little backs and forths. So depths of words and talking it forward is something that you must be aware of. And when you're aware of this, when you're really into this, 
the answer is to start seeking. You say, I am a seeker. I am someone who's looking for something. I don't know what I'm looking for. I'm I'm actually searching. And that means I need to go into broader. I need to expose myself to broader perspectives, broader ideas. And this, well, comes back again to our phrase of the day, which is everything means everything. This is words as propellants. This is an assertion of values. It's an assertion of motivation. Now, when I hear this phrase, everything means everything, I feel motivated. I feel like, yes, I need to step up. I need to do what I need to do. And it's really a stand against nihilism. It's a stand against ecclesiastics. And the depth of the words, you notice, depend on me, Dosta. It's completely personal. I thought up this phrase. It's me saying this phrase. It's not for some book. It's not from some historian. It's not from some intellectual. This is me. This is mine. It's 100% personal. I am asserting that everything means everything. And there's two ways that can resonate or not with you. Because you can say, well, who the hell are you? You're not an intellectual. You're not a public speaker. You have no standing. And you can say the other side of it, which is, well, good for you. You're an individual that's standing up against so much, against all the odds in this tough, complex, vast society that we find ourselves in. Someone found something. That's amazing. And both of those ways of having it resonate or not can happen with whoever's listening or not. (laughs) And of course, there's also this thing for me personally, which is I have the feeling in my body and then I say everything means everything. And there's a depth to that. But then there's the thing where I don't have the feeling that I would normally associate with that word, with that phrase rather, and I say it anyway, and it has a different resonance within me. So this is where we get into the personal mechanics. This is where we get into personal phenomenological experiencing. And here we have to talk about things like meditation, contemplation, self-inquiry, self-knowledge. And the real thing that's happening here is a difference between feeling and thinking. And if you haven't worked out yet, they happen at different speeds and they happen at different times. So it can be that I can be driving or I can be in a low patch or I can just not feel about much in my day. And yet it comes to mind, everything means everything. And I just think, oh, what was I thinking? That was a terrible idea. Why was I even saying that phrase? How is that even useful at all? And then it's like, well, other times I realized, yes, this is its full-on meaning. This has its full-on depth. And when it it has its depth, it's like it's, it's just power. 
It's just like this sheer majesty. It's like everything makes sense. I feel unstoppable. I feel like everything is summarized. Everything can be sorted out. And it's like this, it's like this, it's just like a speechless beauty. Everything means everything. That is a speechless beauty. So now we get in, get on to, this actually ties nicely into the next section that I wanted to talk about, which is the mass of meaning. And in this, we have to reconcile the profound and the mundane or intensity and apathy or intensity and non-intensity or we could say the meaningful and the meaninglessness. And you notice that this really is another one of those things that folds in on itself because you could say, with this phrase, everything means everything, that it's possibly one of the most profound statements I've ever made or come across or ever even thought about. In so many ways, it is the summary of everything. And when we, when we use these phrases, when we use these kind, of, these kind of words, that's sort of one side of it, Right? And that whole side is, is intensity. It's bigness. It's like this huge thing. It's an intense feeling. It's a passion. It's a sensation that's everywhere. Everything is vibrant. Everything is alive. You, you, you really get this sense, right? It's this huge like blah sort of thing. But the other side of it is the mundane which is when you're in that nihilistic space, you're in that meaningless space. And you say, well, huh, what was I thinking? It doesn't resonate. Nothing tastes good. Nothing feels good. I just can't seem to smile. I'm stuck in this. I don't know why. I should know better. I'm an intelligent person. And nothing is working for me. And it's then that I realize, well, actually, this phrase still applies because everything means everything. And that includes the meaningless. That includes the nihilistic side within each of us. It includes ecclesiastics. And this is how the sort of circle of talking yourself around and around turns into a spiral, which comes out. And it's a tricky one. It's a really tricky one. It's just like, wow, I wish I could remember more often. <laughs> I wish I could really, really live the words that I'm saying <laughs> in so many ways. And I have to admit to you, I have to be honest with you. I'm as honest as I can be with you. And that's sort of another a funny thing, right? Because it could be like, it, it's almost like that thing, I wouldn't trust the man who wouldn't steal just a little, except in reverse, which is that, <laughs> does that mean you always trust the man that does steal? <laughs> I don't know if that's the right way to go about this. Let me try and skewer this a different way before I, 
<laughs> before I get lumped into the thieves and the robbers, how are we going to do this? <sighs> Probably a good example would be Jekyll and Hyde. You remember that story, right? Jekyll and Hyde is the one man who has two sides of him. And on one side, he's, well, basically a normal fellow, quite powerless, quite harmless, quite innocent. And then he turns into the other side and he is someone who's a brute. He's someone who's not only a brute, but actually quite strong quite powerful, very dangerous. And that's a classic story for a reason. And maybe we can draw a parallel between that, between maybe we can draw a parallel between Jekyll and Hyde and the werewolf as a fantasy character archetype or mythological structure. Which is basically the same thing, because the werewolf is very dangerous. The werewolf is vicious. The, the werewolf needs to be scared, or fe feared, sorry, rather. We need to be scared of the werewolf, because it is powerful. And yet on the other side, there's this innocent man. And this man knows that he can turn into a werewolf, and that's his danger. That's his torment. That's his guilt in a sort of way. How can he deal with the fact that he might turn into something that would turn on his own loved ones, kill his own loved ones? And he has to live with that even when he's not a werewolf. And of course you can say, well, it's not his fault. He's not in his right mind. He's, in a, he's a different person. But that's exactly the division in man. That's exactly the problem, which is... How do you deal with the fact that on one side you have this meaninglessness, this nihilism, this sort of bad habits, downness, sadness, bleak outlook, this sort of general sort of vibe of ugh, and yet on the other side you're also very intelligent. You're productive. You have your own unique powers. You have your own uniqueness. You have your own abilities, your own dreams. And so many things that are positive and beautiful and intensely meaningful. Incredibly meaningful. And the question is, who has both of these? Who is it? that has both of these? Who is it that knows they are a man and a werewolf? Who is it that knows they are Jekyll and Hyde? Now, I don't know the story of Jekyll and Hyde well enough to be able to answer that and what the answer is in that story. I don't know if it is that when he was a brute, he'd lost his mind or not. Maybe it's different depending on which version. I mean, there's lots of different versions of that story. But the drama is the same. The drama is that tension within the character. And really, the answer is, we can know both sides. 
In fact, we have to know both sides. We have to reconcile both sides. And the only way I can think to do that is to embrace both. And that is to know the meaning of both. Whatever it means to you, whatever its significance is, whatever your response to it is, you have to accept. And that might seem like it's too easy. It's almost like we're falling into a kind of cliche. And I might find myself saying something like, well, you have to accept yourself, right? That sounds so much like a cliche, cheesy, spiritual catchphrase, right? Well, actually, you have to accept yourself is the meaning of everything means everything, or at least it's one of the meanings. It's really what it's getting, getting at in so many ways. What you mean is what you mean. And don't take that to be a kind of spiral. Don't let that spin off into a postmodern fallacy or a trap that we've been discussing so far already. So that's a little bit about meaning. Now, I'd like to come to conservatism because this helps to further flesh out what meaning is and how things can assert themselves in their own way and how they exist in their own way and how they function in their own way. So the way I'm thinking about this today, how I'm talking about this today, is as conservatism high and low. So we've got two types of conservatism. High conservatism is consciously chosen. Low conservatism is unconsciously chosen, or you're just sort of born into it. Now, it's very hard to distinguish those two things. It's very hard to actually give a clear path towards consciously choosing something and not unconsciously choosing something. And really, you need both of those paths because they go hand in hand. But let me give some simple examples. This is what we might call neo-traditionalism. So this comes up in the culture expressions or manifestations where someone says, okay, so your opinion is yours and my opinion is mine. So I'm going to choose that this opinion is right for me and I'm just going to stick with it. And when we have neo-traditionalism, we have a resurgence of old things come back in their previous forms. Now, the best example I can think of is the neo-jazz music. So this is where we have the breakdown of linear time or culture unfolding in a linear way because we have, say, traditional jazz music or Dixieland jazz music and then along comes some modern musicians for their time and they say, well, now we have the bebop music, which is different to the Dixieland music. It's a little bit more modern. And then some more musicians come along as some time passes. And then we have the free jazz music. And they're even more modern. And the culture still progresses. More people come along. Time unfolds. And more modernness 
keeps happening to jazz music until the music doesn't resemble anything what it did a hundred years ago when we were playing Dixieland music. And then we have the neo-traditionalism, which is where someone says, hang on a second, stop everything. I don't like this whole modern progress thing. I'm going to go back to Dixieland jazz or bebop jazz or free jazz, and I'm just going to play it as it was in that time, but I'm going to play it in this time. And that's a kind of traditionalism. That's neo-traditionalism. And this is closely related to conservatism. Conservatism, in a nutshell, is where you say, I choose these values and I'm just going to stick with those. And there's a function to that. There's a meaning to that. There's a utility to that. Conservatism is one of the ways in which you make sense of the wild, wild west, which is the culture wars, which is to pick a little corner and to say, this is good enough for me, I'm just going to stick here. And I can see the wisdom in that. I can see the allure of that. Believe me, I'm very much sympathetic to the conservatives. Now, there are still levels of conservatism because which corner you choose will depend on how your conservatism manifests itself. So think of it this way. Let's put it into just three levels of conservatism. So this would be three people who have decided, okay, I'm just going to choose my values and I'm going to stick with them and I'm just going to live with them because they're just right for me and that's okay for me but they're all going to choose different things. One person chooses the rule-based belief traditionalism. So this is someone who believes most likely in traditional religion. We should live by God's word. We should live by the church. We should live by the Ten Commandments. We should follow the rules of society. We shouldn't break any laws. We should fit into the community. We should fit in with our role in society or within work. And we should just follow what the basic progression is, which is become born, receive an education, get a job, start a family, do what good you can, and then retire in peace. And that's traditional values. Now, to do that conservative in a conservative way, is to just say, well, that's all I'm going to do. That's what's right for me. Now, another level of this would be the rational scientific meme. And this unfolded after the traditional rules paradigm had manifested itself in the world. And this is where the individual goes, well, we should have profiteering and business and marketing, and working hard, and all the rest of it. This is where capitalism comes into it, and scientific rationalism comes into it. And this person would say, well, I'm just going to do what's rational. I don't need my Bible anymore. I don't need so much the rules of society. I'll work within the rules of society, but I'll also bend them a little bit and shape the rules to suit my needs. And this is someone who is into progress. 
This is someone who is into really material wealth and scientific research for basically for utility and for progress and for gross, obvious advancement in all the ways in which we see it, whether it's in technology or utilities or infrastructure or information and all the rest of it. And you can be conservative in that paradigm. Someone who's conservative in that paradigm is going to say, no, I don't really believe in the Bible. I believe in science. And conversely, then it's going to say, well, I'm not going to believe in other sort of things that contradict science. In fact, it's science or nothing. It's rationality or nothing. It's me and my progress and my business or nothing. That's conservatism at the rational level. Now, for the third person, (laughs) it's funny that I say the third person because this is the third person pluralistic. This is the pluralistic level of conservatism. Now, this is someone who really unfolds after the scientific meme or the rationalistic meme. And their basic idea is that, well, we need to get in touch with our emotions. We need to actually understand more about community and connecting with each other and the environment and sustainability. This is the green meme. This is the pluralistic meme. And you could be conservative in that meme. So it's funny that normally you see the green meme as someone who's progressive. And the word progressive means something very different to the pluralist rather than the the rationalist. Basically, the the pluralist has the meaning of uh, sees the meaning of progress as in oh we should open up people's diversities more freedom to the people more freedom to the individual down with big corporations down with big structures of human collectives and come back to what's natural come back to smaller communities and yet that is a conservative way of being inside that. Now, here's where conservative high and low comes into it. Now that I've explained this to you, you have the choice of choosing which of those paradigms you can go into because you're conscious of it. This is high conservatism. This is conscious conservatism. It's been explained to you. Now, however these descriptions that I've given you have resonated with you will be... I'm losing it. I can't, I can't finish that sentence. Let me try and see this another way. Let me try and say this another way. How you relate to those value spheres is different now that you've had explain, you've had it explained to you. Which means if you're going into them consciously with this higher explanation, then you've got a high conservatism. Now, another side of this would be that you say, well, choosing just one would be closed-mindedness. 
Shouldn't you just be open to all paradigms? And that's where you say, yes. That's where you say, actually, conservatism has its limits. Conservatism is going to hinder your ability to experience more. But remember, experiencing more is a value. Experiencing more ties in with what life means to you, what is significant to you. So it all comes back to you. It all comes back to your self-knowledge. And if experiencing more is not something that resonates with you, then maybe actually conservatism is something you need to look at. Maybe it is something you need to adopt. Some people don't really want to experience more because they feel that there is just so much going on. There's so much contradiction. There's too much information. There's too much happening. And it's that way not just in the political sphere or the social sphere, but it's also that way in personal life. The immediate individual personal life circumstances. I'm just too busy. I've got my job. I've got my kids. I've got my hobbies. I've got my community experiences or commitments. I've got this and that and other interests and things that I'm working on. And from sunup to sundown, I'm busy. It's go, go, go. And if that's the case, well, you're going to fall into whatever values work for you anyway. It might be that you've fallen into conservatism unconsciously because that's just what works. That's the only thing you can use to just get you through the wild, wild west. And if that's the case, well, here's where you start to become conscious of that and you start to change those things. Here's where you actually start to break into your own values, which then leads on to changing things like your very own schedule, the very things that you work on, the very things that you think about, the exact amount of time that you have. And you start to see, if you can sense this, how powerful it is, how much can change when you have these realizations. Your whole direction of life can change. Things that are significant to you can completely collapse and fall by the wayside in a mountain of rubble. And quite strangely enough, that collapse actually makes way for something new. And we can see a parallel, or at least from where I'm sitting right now, I can see a parallel between that collapse and that something new and meaninglessness and the meaningful. Because when new meaning is being born, certain things become meaningless. And it can be quite scary to have that happen all around you. To have that at an, ex- at an excelled rate is, is very scary. It feels like the whole world is crumbling. It feels like everything around you is crumbling. And in fact, in many ways, you don't have a choice in the matter. 
Because this phrase, the world is crumbling around you, well, there are going to be times when that happens in life. Because there are times when your value sphere and your beliefs and your psychology is brought up against things, sometimes very intensely. That's exactly the thing that we're working on. That's exactly the thing you have to contend with. So to spit it out here as like, oh, you can just live a conservative life and choose your values and that will work. Or you can step up and be open-minded and develop your psychology. Well, that's a false dichotomy. You don't have the choice. Because either way, you're going to have to evolve your psychology. You're going to have to evolve your Values. Either way, the world is going to crumble around you and you're going to have to make sense of it. Now, I'd like to go into pluralism a little bit more. And this is, as I have said, closely related to postmodernism. And you see the pluralism... I, I do also wonder if I'm going too fast. Do I need to rest a little bit and just have a pause before we launch into the next thing? I mean, I'm going at a million miles an hour. I mean, I'm going as fast as I... I mean, I'm going <laughs> I'm going at a pace which is good for me, but I mean, I sometimes feel like I'm going too fast. So let's just take a, a moment to breathe before we jump into this because I don't want to be overloading things cognitively. So... Just take a moment to take a few breaths and have a moment of quiet just before we launch into this next thing. Okay, so pluralism. Like we have conservatism, high and low, we have pluralism, high and low. And pluralism is the celebrating of each individual's perspective. This is a positive form of postmodernism. Pluralism celebrates diversity. It celebrates helping the minority. It helps to elevate the minority. And you can see so easily in very simple examples how this can be brought to violence. It can be brought to a fallacy, brought to a pathology. And... Really, we see this most in the communication sphere, in the information sphere. And it does actually spill over into what we call real life or life offline as well. So this is where you have someone who is part of a minority group and someone does something violent or aggressive 
in defense of that minority group. And as we talk about it here, as I laid out in just these few words, it seems obvious, right? It's just like, why would you hurt someone in defense of someone who's being hurt? Why would you cause harm in order to try and save someone from being harmed? That doesn't make any sense at all. And yet, how it actually manifests itself, how it actually comes up so often, is that we don't see that. We don't see that connection at all. And the violence is done. The hurt is done. And really, to clarify this, we do need to split this into violence in the biosphere and violence in the informational sphere. And that's a tricky one. That's a really tricky one. Because who is it to say what can and can't be said? And who is it to say what is and isn't hurtful? Well, that's why we have the chaos that we have, isn't it? That's really what it comes down to. Now, there is something that can help to actually clarify all this, and it's this. The question goes, what should apply to everyone? And this is really the crux of pluralism. This is the crux of the real mechanics. Here we get to the root cause, the real rock bottom of pluralism. What should apply to everyone? Because you notice in this thing of, oh, my opinion is just my opinion and your opinion is just your opinion. In that, it is implied that there is something that applies to both of us. In that, it's implied that there is some sort of value which is unsaid, unseen. It's sort of hanging in the air around us without being noticed. Noticed. Which applies to both of us. And if we were to sort of structure our conversations eloquently, or perhaps a little bit more eloquently, then we could divide it into the things that apply to both of us and the things that don't. And this is sort of what's powerful about those game shows or those question shows or those interviews where they say, do you agree or do you disagree? Right? You've seen these where you get a crowd of people or a group of people and they can either stand or vote or write on a piece of paper or however it is about agreeing or disagreeing. And then they give a whole bunch of either moral dilemmas or value statements or all sorts of statements and it divides the room, right? Because you immediately have some people on one side and other people on the other. 
And that's the division. That's the, your opinion is your opinion, and it's very different, and I don't agree with any of it, and my opinion is my opinion, and you should stay the hell away from it, and you should have nothing to do with it. And that's how it comes out. That's how it appears. That's how it unfolds. And yet within that, we're both still in the same room. We're both still contending with the same dilemma. We're both still contending with the values that are being given to us or the problems that are being given to us. And really, I wish there were more structures by which we could have these conversations. And I think by recognizing what is different and what is the same between us is the key to that. And to answer what applies to all, well, it's what we agree should apply to all. And there are things that we can all agree on depending on who it is that's part of the conversation, depending on who it is that has listened to the conversation, depending on who it is that has a voice in the conversation, depending on what information is available, there are always things that we can all agree on. There are always things that can apply to all. Likewise, there are always things that will be different amongst us. There will always be things that we can't agree on. And I feel it's not really enough to just say that. It's not enough for me to explain it to you here. Like for you to hear this explanation, for me to sort of lay this out or to bring this to light in the way of words is not enough. Even to explain a structure by which we can do that is not enough. And this is why, really, you have to bring yourself into practice. You have to bring yourself into techniques that really put you in touch with the things within you that stop you from being able to see the things as they are. And this means techniques. This means the actual practices. This means practices, actual practice. It means doing things that will experientially allow you to open up and to see these things in real time. An explanation is not enough. The perfect explanation is not enough. And let me tell you what I mean by this. Let me give you some actual concrete examples. It means putting yourself in the situation where the sole purpose of being there is to understand someone who's different to you. And preferably doing that in the same room as the person. So not via a screen, not via a conversation through technology, 
but actually face-to-face in the same room, breathing the same air. And ideally, what you need is someone who's facilitating, someone who's aware of what's going on, someone who's structured the environment, someone who's structured the conversation. And really, I believe this is where the origins of debate come from. This is why the debate structure exists. This is why we have debates at all. Now, a debate in its most broadest sense is a structure that we put on top of the relationship between two people or the unfolding of information and communication between two people. And it appears in all different ways, right? There's so many different kinds of debates in so many different places, in so many different cultures through hundreds and hundreds of years, right? So I'm talking about debate in its broadest meaning. But understand the real significance of that. Understand the real point of the debate. Understand it from where we're coming from here. Now, think of it, think of it, when we don't have a debate. Think about when two people just meet. Normally two people meet and they just start talking and they talk back and forth and the language changes and certain bits of information comes out and values come out, beliefs come out and there's tension and harmony and all the rest of it. And it's sort of back and forth. Now, when you take that game up a level, is when you actually put some structure onto what's happening between you. And you can do this not just in debate form, but you can actually say, how do we do this on every conversation? This is when you talk about something that is about the conversation. You talk about how it is that you're talking to one another, how it is that you relate to one another. It's a kind of way of going meta. Now, Meta, going meta, is another one of those things like the postmodern circles where it's like you believe what you believe and I believe what I believe and so on. Because you can actually go meta on going meta and things can turn inside out and it just sort of unfolds on itself and you're back at square one. Well, actually, you could argue that you're not back at square one, you're back at a different place. And in that way, going meta has its own utility. It has its own point to it. But a debate, an actual structure is where you have something set in stone, which is meta, but it doesn't turn inside out. It doesn't bring you back to square one or even to a different place. It is contained within itself. And really, you have to learn to debate. You have to learn to be within those structures as a way of learning, as a way of bringing something to yourself that wouldn't otherwise be brought to you. And part of me wants to organize that the majority of debates are actually bastardized versions of what the initial point of putting a structure onto a conversation would have been because really today debates are more about like well how do we make someone look very smart and how do we have them agree with all our values 
and they beat the other person and the other person looks really dumb. That's what you want to see in a debate, right? You want to see someone who's like, yes, I'm really rooting for him and he really won. It's like, it's like a classic fight, right? It's a kind of tribalism where you say, yeah, he's my guy and I really want him to win. And if he wins really outright, you feel really strong because you were on his side. It's like, yes, he really beat him. And that's not really a debate. That's more like a fist fight. It's like, why are you doing that? What have you learned from that? What illumination has come from that? What kind of expansion has come from that? And these are, I must say, higher values. These are better things to have within you than things like victory or dominance or being right. Being illuminated is better than being victorious. Being expansive is better than being dominant. And that list goes on. Those things go on and on and on because they're just two different ways of seeing things. And of course, when you see it, it's easy, right? When you understand this, debates in how they appear the majority of the time are quite tasteless. They're quite meaningless. And that's when you'll start to say things well, like, well, I don't really like debates, but I prefer conversations. I prefer, I prefer a more natural, soft kind of back and forth, or I prefer discussions, these sorts of things. If you're finding yourself coming to that, then, well, you're probably on the way to higher values, or at least you have the intuition for it. So another side of this, or another way of looking at this, would be the awareness-intensive room. And this is very different to the debate or even to the conversation. It's where you go into a room and there's a certain structure that's placed onto the behaviors of the people in that room, which are designed to bring out their values and their beliefs and even their emotions in such a way that you can be exposed to them without having so much damage done to you and yet you can absorb them. And that's really where an awareness intensive is a cut above a conversation and a, a, a hundred levels above a debate, right? It's so much further ahead of a debate. It's where you're actually being able to get the juice of what you want to get from a debate, but in a much higher dosage and in a safe way in a way that is structured and, I need to say it, it's caring. It's one of those times when the higher values actually come down to the lower to help elevate things. Something like caring, that's a value. Now think of how many debates are created where the point of them is to be caring. And it's very hard to do that. It's very hard. Because once you become caring, it's very easy to become passive. 
it's very easy to become or it's very easy to fall into the side where you don't actually learn anything because you're being so caring that nothing actually comes out because you don't want to offend anyone or anything like that. And that's really the beauty of an awareness intensive because people get to say the things that would offend all of the people in the room. They get to say these, say these outrageous things. But because the caring is there, it doesn't have the same effect as it would in a debate. It doesn't function in the same way as it does in a debate. So let me just say that practice, techniques, awareness intensives, these are the answers to finding these things. And if you're listening to conversations, you're listening to debates, you need to move on in your journey. You need to move on in your understanding. You need to go deeper. You really need to find the things that actually give you the good results. And it will never, ever be in the form of an explanation. An explanation or a rationalization is worthless in the world of experience, in the world of true experience. An explanation is utterly pointless. So, with that in mind, let me come back to the explanation of the day. (laughs) In so many ways, I have to contradict myself right after I've said something because everything means everything is an explanation, right? (laughs) And in a sense, it's meant to be the be-all and end-all of all the explanations. It's really trying to get at this thing that I've just said, which is that explanations are pointless. Because when you have an explanation that applies perfectly to everything, then you actually have to take that next step. Or at least that's the idea here. That's why I've sort of come up with this motto or one of the things that I'd like to tie in with this motto So, everything means everything actually means do away with your explanations and actually do the work. Actually find where you need to do the work and get to it. And that's going to be in experience. It's going to be in action. It's going to be in the things that were created from higher values like illumination, expansion and caring and all the rest of it. So, to bring this back to Earth a little bit, let me go into the mechanics of a motto a little bit more. And there's three principles that I'd like to explain. One is the fishing hook principle. Another is the single note theory. And another is just the playful catchphrase idea. Now, the fishing hook theory means exactly what it means. When you go fishing, you have a hook, which is one thing 
that is meant to ensnare something out of many options. So if the fish are representing values or beliefs or psychologies or even feelings or even rationalizations or explanations, then your hook is the phrase that you've got. And you hook that phrase into the ocean and you pull one out. And you see what you catch with it. You see what you get with it. Now, some hooks are better than others, right? Some hooks are going to catch certain types of fish. It also depends on where you throw your hook, where you say this phrase. But the hook is the phrase. And the phrase is, everything means everything. So you can go around with this and you can say, well, where does that apply? If I try and say that in certain situations, what does it bring me to? What sort of reaction do I have? If I try and reduce things to this certain phrase, how do I feel about it? Does it nullify certain beliefs? Does it nullify certain explanations? And I hope that it does. And I hope that it does in a positive way. Because nullifying explanations is how you're actually going to go beyond them. Now, the next thing is this single note theory. Now, this ties in with attention. And I'm calling it the single note theory, which is I mean, I, I have to explain all of this. I really have to back up and take my time with this. And this is an original idea. This is just how I think about it. So you won't hear about this principle anywhere else. And it goes like this. In music, you have notes, right? A, B, C, D, E flat, B flat. Those are the notes. And music is made of notes. And single note theory is where the composer or the musician chooses this one note in the song or the composition and they say, that's my focus point. That's the climax. That's the anchor. That's the whole thing that the rest of the music revolves around. It's this one moment. And musicians understand this even if they don't explain it in this way. Because musicians know that music is about this, that, that one moment. It's just that one instant, that one note where it pierces into your being and it's beautiful and it's amazing and it makes this huge impression and it's this incredible thing. And it's pronounced and it's amazing and it's in, indescribable. It's all those things. And really all the notes exist around it for that one note, right? It's the context being manipulated to create meaning. That's what it comes back to. And you can also do this in another way, which is where you say, well, what if we have two notes in a song and one is at the beginning or one is towards the end? 
And then you can say, well, what if you have multiple songs and there's one note per song? Each one song has one climax to it. Well, then you can say, well, it might seem a bit repetitive if you're doing that. It might sound like every song is the same. You don't want to have things as always being climactic. You don't want to have the climax always in the same position. And that really is the art. That's really the mechanics of being a musician and crafting music in different ways. And if you're aware of this as a musician, you can use it. You can say, well, I'm going to write a piece of music which works with this principle and then other times do away with this principle. And that's how knowledge comes into action. And the same thing applies here with our knowledge of meaning. In a sense, and I shouldn't say in a sense, in a, in a literal way, everything means everything is one note. And we're saying, how do we have things revolve around that by contrast to see it as a deeper experience, to see it as a deeper understanding. So everything means everything is that single note in the song, which is the climax, the meaning, the depth, the potency of that song. And that's how you can pull yourself out of sea, a, a sea of meaninglessness. Oh, it all just means the same. Oh, it's all the same, right? That's really a simile for everything is meaningless, is everything is the same. And then we just have something a little bit more easy, which is the third way, or the third mechanics, third set of mechanics for this motto, which is just a playful catchphrase. And playfulness is a higher value that goes with illumination and caring and expansiveness. Playfulness is one of those. And everything means everything is. <laughs> it is a playful attitude, right? Now, I've given this big sermon, this big talk about all of its different ins and outs, when really the, the, the true meaning of everything means everything is just sort of like, eh, it's all good, man. Like, what's up, bro? Like, sweet as cuz. This sort of phrase. You know these phrases? Sweet as cuz. Sweet as bro. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, man. Do you ever say, yeah, man? Yeah, dude. Yeah, cool. You know that sort of throwaway, like, yeah, it's all easy. You know, the easy guy. I mean, I'm, I'm probably a bit older now for that sort of <laughs> that sort of phrase to stick. But of course, there has been a very long time in my life when those sorts of phrases do stick. And yet it's in the same vein. It's in the same sort of happy-go-lucky, like, like, oh, here's another one for you. Akuna Matata. That's a perfect example of it. You know the phrase Akuna Matata? It means no worries. What a wonderful phrase. Akuna Matata. Ain't no parson craze. And that's just the same as, yeah, cool, man. Sweet as cuz. So how the words come out, well, it's, there are always slight different ways in which these words have meanings and there are slight differences to them. But I think you're getting my point, 
right? So think of everything means everything as a phrase which is like, well, akuta matata. It's sort of like a, a load off the shoulder of realizing, well, I can't figure it out, but that's okay. Meaning is relative, but that's okay. And everyone does have their own opinions and that's okay too. And we do have differences and we do need to learn more, but that's okay. Everything's okay. Which is really tricky to actually realize because (laughs) even now as I'm saying that, we come back to this thing of talking it forwards because you can be sitting in the corner. <laughs> you can be sitting in the corner having your nervous breakdown and just being saying like, oh, everything's okay. Everything's okay. Think positive thoughts. Think positive thoughts. And it's like, well, <laughs> no, actually, you're way off track. You need to be thinking that everything is not okay. <laughs> so don't let it go inside out. I mean, it, it's so funny, isn't it, that things have to be able to turn inside out and yet they also have to have an inside and an outside. That's really what this means. That's really what this comes down to. Everything means everything. And another way of saying that is that we could have said inside out is outside in. Or inside is inside and outside is outside. But what happens when we turn it inside out? There should be a dilemma in that, right? There should be a gargantuan cognitive dissonance in that, right? But somehow there isn't. Somehow it's totally fine to put your jumper on inside out and say, it's inside out. I hope that comes home. I hope that example can explain what I'm getting at here. I think by now I'm starting to get my point across. (laughs) And I guess you can just say it and see what happens. I guess you can say it as a kind of motto as a like a chanting and just see what happens everything means everything now i run the risk here of having too much of a mind come into it too much of a psychology come into it and it might be that i've said too much to allow it to be a chant because when i say the words Everything means everything. All that we've explained here today will have its reappearance in some way or another. And that will be a thought. That will be a psychology rather than a feeling. So perhaps we've gone too far. Perhaps it's not right to try to turn it into a motto or a phrase or a chanting. And if that's the case, well then that's what it is, because it means what it means. Because everything means everything. And really, to sort of wrap this up, or to sort of put a nice little bow on 
everything that we've talked about, we come back to what we said at the start, which is that we're in the situation that we are in. We have the life conditions that we have. And I want to say that we're stuck with what we've got. We're stuck with what we've got, but that's not exactly quite right. And another part of me wants to say, well, we can do something about the situation that we're in, and yet that's not entirely quite right. And yet, I still manage to see myself falling into this circle. Really, we need to have a mechanism within us that identifies closed circles that go around and around and around and again. And I believe, and it's a value of mine and it's my feeling, that the phrase, everything means everything, is one of the things that can get you out of those circles. And it does it by making fun of them, turning them into a joke. Just like saying, well, your opinion is my opinion. Sorry, I've messed it up. Your opinion is your opinion. (laughs) And my opinion is my opinion. And that's just your opinion. And then you can say, well, that's just your opinion. And then I can say, well, that's just your opinion. And so on and so forth. Well, the same thing can be said of meaning. Well, that's what it means. And what does it mean? Well, that's just what it means. And what does that mean? Well, that's what it means. And you can put an end to this whole conversation by just saying, well, everything means everything. And that's all I have to say for now.